Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges. Uh, Judges chapter 9 in the Old Testament. We're going to continue our series in Judges. And if you've been following in Judges, we have looked at the life of Gideon the last few weeks in chapter 6, 7, and 8. And he started so well. God called him to lead a force of only 300 men to defeat the mighty Midianites, a force of 135,000 men, 300 versus 135,000, not very good odds, but when you have God on your side, it's always good odds. And God used them to defeat the Midianites. And Gideon had faith in God to do that, for faith for which he is commended for in the book of Hebrews. And then last week in chapter 8, as we followed the story of Gideon, you almost forget this. He starts well with the Lord, but he does not end well, does he? By the end of his life last week, we saw that he is leading Israel into idol worship. He has many wives. Anyone remember how many sons Gideon has? Seventy. That's a lot of sons. He, he's basically acting like he is the king of Israel. In fact, he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. So if you name your son, my father is king, you are saying that you are the what? The king. So the story of Abimelech is going to continue today. Really, the story of Gideon's family tree is going to continue through Abimelech today. And just when we thought the story couldn't get any worse with Gideon, it's going to get even worse with Abimelech. And I want you to pay careful attention and ask yourself this question, who is the enemy? As we read chapter 9, who is actually the enemy here in chapter 9, okay? Now, if you look at chapter 9 real quick, how many verses are in there? 57. That is a lot of verses. So what I need you to do is just stand for a second and stretch. We're going to get through all of them. Go ahead and stand. Please stand. We need to stretch. When there's a passage like this, there is no way to cut it. We need all of them. Go ahead and stretch real quick. (laughs) All right. Move around a little bit. Wake yourself up. It's a very interesting story. Okay, you can be seated. I'll have you stand a little bit later. (laughs) It's a very, very interesting story. So I'm going to start at verse 1. It says, Abimelech, which means my father is king, son of Jeroboam, that's Gideon. That's a reference to Gideon. He went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons roll over you? Or just one man. Remember, I am your flesh and blood. So to hear what he's saying, he goes to his mother's relatives because we learned in chapter 8, he is the son of a concubine. Gideon's his dad, but his mom is a concubine, which is kind of like not really a wife, not really a prostitute. It's somewhere in the middle that Gideon had. And so he would not have been an heir to the throne because he was kind of an illegitimate child, but he has this plan where I'm going to go to my mother's relatives and say, hey, what's better? 70 rulers? That sounds chaotic. Or one person. And in verse 3, look at what they say. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. By the way, do we ever choose leaders based on if they're related to us? Not in Adam's county. We would never do that. (laughs) Verse 4, they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. So this is money from a pagan temple. And Abimelech used it to hire what? What's the text say? 
reckless scoundrels who became his followers. So he went to his father's home in Ophrah, so Gideon's home, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, escaped by hiding. So, so technically, he didn't kill 70. He killed how many? 69. And the fact that it says one stone shows that this is a deliberate, intentional execution, one by one. He's killing all of his half-brothers so that he can lay claim to the throne. So how's Abimelech doing? Not so well. Verse 6, then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. So they have a coronation ceremony. And this place is actually the same place. You can go to the next slide where Joshua, in the book previous to Judges, where Joshua and the Israelites make a commitment. It says in Joshua 24, 26, and 27, and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So at that very same stone in place where Joshua is talking to his people and they are committing to following the Lord, they are now making Abimelech king. Let's keep going, verse 7. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. So do you see what's going on here? They're having a big party celebrating that Abimelech's king and the youngest son, whom he failed to kill, gets up on a mountain to interrupt this party and give an announcement. I mean, this is the stuff of dramas, of Netflix and Hulu. I mean, this is crazy stuff. He's going to give an announcement. He's going to tell a fable to this party, this coronation party. So here's what he says in verse 8. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. So he's telling a story. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and humans are honored to hold sway over the trees? Next, the tree said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, so this is the third ask, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. So let's stop there for a moment. He's telling this fable to this party. The first three plants, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine, all say, no, we're not going to be your king. But what plant says it will be their king. What was it again? A thorn bush. And if you look at verse 15 carefully, can you really take refuge in the shade of a thorn bush? Is that possible? What's going to happen if you get under a thorn bush? You're going to get scraped. In addition, it talks about fire. Thorn bushes were known for just kind of randomly starting on fire and spreading fires. And so before he even applies the parable, who is the thornbush king that Jotham is talking about? 
Who is it? Abimelech. He's the thorn bush. Pretty clever story. So here's what Jotham says in verse 16. He says, have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam, that's Gideon and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. We saw that in chapter 7. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he is related to you. Verse 19, so have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, and really, let's face it, they haven't, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Malo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Malo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. So Jotham gets up, basically tells this fable or parable, and pronounces a sort of curse on them. If you've acted well, may good things happen to you in your reign. But if you haven't acted well, May fire come out from you, Abimelech, and may fire come out from the people, and may you basically destroy one another. So it's worth noting that up to this point in Judges, we've seen this cycle up on screen. All through Judges, we've seen this cycle repeat. The people sin, they forget God. They are oppressed by outside enemies like the Midianites. They eventually cry out to God because of their oppression, and God raises up a judge He delivers them, number five, and brings victory, number six, and then they have peace. In fact, we just saw this in chapter six, seven, eight. This cycle played out perfectly. And so when we get to chapter nine, we would expect this cycle to continue. And it does to an extent. They they sin, but who now is the enemy? Who is really oppressing the Israelites? If you go to the next slide, so far we've seen that Israel's enemies have been from outside. It's been the Moabites in chapter 3, and that was that big fat king, Eglon, that Ehud, the left-handed man, killed with the sword, and the sword went in his fat. You know, it's kind of a crazy story. Chapters 4 and 5, the Canaanites were the enemies. The last few chapters, it's been the Midianites. But who are now the enemies of Israel oppressing them? You can participate. Who is it? Abimelech. It's themselves. So the enemies now are Abimelech. And the people of Shechem. And so I called this sermon the enemy within because the enemy has been outside of them for so long. And now they are being oppressed. They need deliverance from their very own king and people. The enemy is now within Israel. You know, I could, uh, I could just hang on that point for a while preach several sermons because if you think of Abimelech and the kind of leader he is, we could talk about leadership that Abimelech is a horrible example of leadership that we are not called to be like him at all. If you are a leader in any way in your family or organization, boy, really leadership is the opposite of Abimelech. You're called to serve, not be served, just like Christ did. Or we could talk about the people and the kind of leaders they're electing. I mean, why did they elect Abimelech again? Because he's related to them. I mean, think of the kind of leaders we elect in our country, in our organizations, in our businesses, in our churches and nonprofits. Why do we often pick certain leaders? 
Well, if we're honest, often we kind of look at outside things, like maybe they're related to us, maybe they're talented, maybe they're dynamic and extroverted, and all those things can be really good. But if you remember when God chose King David to be king, why did he choose King David versus all of his brothers? It's because God was looking at the what? The heart. When you get to the New Testament and you think of Paul in 1 Timothy and in Titus, when he's talking about qualifications for leaders, do you know what kind of qualifications he mentions? Does he say you have to be good looking and a dynamic speaker? No, he basically talks about character. It all comes back to the heart. So I could preach a whole other sermon on that. What kind of leaders are we electing? What do we look to when we look to get leaders? And as I was thinking about that kind of sermon, it kind of reminded me of a powerful principle here in some Southern expressions. You ever heard a Southern expression that people have? I'm not a huge fan of country music, but I grew up in a family and had a dad who loved country. So you can pray for him, pray for his soul. <laughs> but he, I remember he used to listen to Randy Travis. Anyone know Randy Travis? And Randy Travis has a song called Don't Ever Sell Your Saddle. And he's talking about his dad giving him a lot of advice using this kind of southern expressions and sayings. Here's a few. His dad would say, trouble always starts as fun, and broken hearts will always mend. Tough times don't last, tough people do, and nothing breaks if it can bend. And then the chorus goes, don't ever sell your saddle, never owe another man, and this is my favorite one, watch where you spit on a windy day. <laughs> See, I try to preach really practical sermons, so if you get nothing else, watch where you spit on a windy day. Don't use words you don't understand. Find the Lord before you need him and never lose your pride. Don't ever sell your saddle because life's a long, long ride. Maybe that's our next worship song, Mike. There you go. <laughs> you know, we, we as a staff, when we meet every week to talk about the sermon, I was asking for some southern expressions from them, and Kate said, well, she used to have a lady in her church an older lady, and you'd ask, how are you doing? And she would say, I'm as fine as frog's fur. <laughs> you ever seen frog's fur? Well, you have to look really closely, I guess, because it's very fine. So she's as fine as frog's fur. Michael Bear, our interim youth pastor, I still call him Mr. Bear. I have a hard time calling him Michael. He had an expression that his grandma told him that you can wrestle with a skunk and win, but you still come away stinking. I mean, chew on that for a while. That's pretty deep. <laughs> so as I was thinking about Abimelech and the people, it reminded me of a lot of those southern expressions, and I tried to make up one myself. Okay, you ready? If you elect or appoint a thorny leader, watch out. You're going to get scratched. Or if you elect and appoint a fiery leader, watch out. You're going to get what? Burned. I mean, we see this principle at play here that we have to be careful the kind of leaders we are and the kind of leaders we elect. I mentioned that the enemy is now within Israel. <coughs> While the leader and the people are the problems, there's actually an enemy within the enemy. So if we go even deeper, it's not just Abimelech and the people. The actual enemy within the enemy is their own sinful hearts. It's their own motivations and desires driving them to make the decisions they're making. The Bible mentions we have at least three enemies. There's the world, the flesh, and what's the third enemy? Or who? The devil. 
The devil is the enemy above us. He, is, he prowls around looking like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He's the father of lies. We, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against him and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's one powerful enemy. The other enemy is the world or the system and values around us. How many of you saw a Black Friday ad this past week? How many of you went Black Friday shopping? Wow. There's nothing wrong with that. But as you're reading, seeing Black Friday ads, you're kind of soaking in the world. The world is telling you, you need this TV at Walmart, a 50-inch TV for $148. That's amazing. You need this to really complete yourself. Advertisements are telling us all the time, and Black Friday is notorious for this, that you need this product to really be you. That's the world coming in, attacking us, very subtle. But the main one I want to focus on today is our hearts, our sinful flesh. The book of James in the New Testament says it like this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And before you even look at it, if you think about it, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, of course, it's the other person. It's their fault. But what does James say? Don't they come from your desires, your sinful heart, that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so what do you do, it says? You kill. Well, that kind of escalated, didn't it, James? My goodness. You desire but do not have, so you kill. This is what every murder TV show is about. What's the motive? What did they desire that caused them to kill? It's a desire gone crazy. He goes on to say, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But even then there's a problem. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with what? Wrong motives. That's going back to your sinful desires, your sinful flesh, your sinful heart, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So the enemy within the enemy here, the enemy within us, often is our own sinful hearts. Let me give you an example of this, even from my own family. Being on Thanksgiving break, our kids are not in school, so they're home more, which is a blessing for the most part. (laughs) My wife and I often desire peace and quiet at certain parts of the day, which is a good desire. But little kids don't always honor that desire, do they? And so if we have a fight and quarrel, I could say, well, what caused it? Well, it was my kids. They were disobeying me. But really, if I'm honest... It was my desire for peace. They violated my desire for peace, and that caused me to lash out and make them pay. Now, yes, they should have obeyed too. I get that. But oftentimes, it's about my heart, what's going on in my heart. That's what caused the argument. Let's keep reading. There's a lot to go. Verse 22. Let's see what happens. Let's see if Jotham's parable comes true. So verse 22, after Abimelech had governed Israel, how long? Keep that in mind. Three years have passed. God stirred up animosity, or your translation may say an evil spirit, between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's or Gideon's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. So do you see what's going on? People are rebelling against Abimelech, and they are setting up raiding parties near Shechem, where he was anointed king, just to prove that Abimelech's not really in power. We're defying him. Verse 26, now Gael, another character, 
son of Ebed, moved with his clan into Shechem, and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. While they were eating and drinking, and you could add partying, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gael, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? And isn't Zebul his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command and I would get rid of him, I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. So do you hear what he's doing? He's trying to make himself what? King now. And he's using the exact same kind of arguments that got Abimelech elected. Who's Abimelech related to? I have a better family than Abimelech. Pretty ironic. Verse 30. When Zebul, the governor of the city, heard what Gael, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gael, son of Ebed, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gael and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night, and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gael, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate, drinking his coffee and eating his donut, just so you can imagine what's going on here, just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding place. When Gael saw them, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebul replied, you mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. He's basically saying, you're still waking up. Put your glasses on, you know, that there's nothing really happening. It's okay. Nothing's happening. But Gael spoke up again. Verse 37. Look, people are coming down from the central hill, and a company is coming from the direction of the diviner's tree. Then Zebul said to him, where is your big talk now? You can almost imagine, where is your big talk now, you who said? Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gael let out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in Arumah, and Zebul drove Gael and his clan out of Shechem. So who won the battle right now? Abimelech. He defeated Gael and their forces in the city of Shechem. Are you with me? Let's keep going. In fact, would you stand? I haven't had you stand for the reading of God's word. Can you stand for the rest of this? This will at least keep us awake. Verse 42 The next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. So Abimelech now is not attacking an army. He's attacking field workers. As they're going out just minding their own business, going to put in a hard day's work, he attacks them. Verse 44, Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered what over it? Salt. This was to ensure that nothing would grow here again. Verse 46, on hearing this, the citizens in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of El Barith. 
When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, quick, do what you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against a stronghold and set it on what? Remember, Jotham said, may fire come out from you, Abimelech, and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. So how's Abimelech doing in his leadership, Gideon's son? Not so well. Next, Abimelech, he didn't have enough. He went to Thebes, another city, and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. So this sounds very familiar to the last city. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. Remember back then in that day, women were kind of like second-class citizens, so I'm not going to die by a woman, he says. So his servant ran him through, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. And you can be seated. I don't have a lot of time left, but I want to talk about how this relates to us. Because all of us, like Gideon last week and Abimelech this week, we also struggle with that enemy within the enemy, our own sinful hearts. It may not be like Gideon and Abimelech to that level, we think, but we all struggle with it. So how do we defeat the enemy within us? The first way, I have three ways. Number one, determine what is your enemy within Determine what's your enemy. What is it in your own sinful heart, if you're honest, that you desire even more than God at times? And let's be honest, we all have desires that creep up more than God all the time. What is your enemy within driving you to act and do certain things? This time of year, like I said, with Black Friday, it could be money and possessions. But it could even be good things like security. If our security is not in God but in something else, that is an enemy within You know, God made us. Our hearts are like engines. We were made to run on God like an engine runs on gasoline. And when we run on anything else other than God, it's going to gum up our souls and gum up our lives and cause all sorts of problems like we saw with Abimelech and the people of Shechem. What is your enemy within that's causing you to draw away from God? That's the first step. The second step is we need to surrender to the one who is fully in control. Surrender to the one who is fully in control. Say that with me. Surrender to the one who is fully in control. You know, there's only four, really four verses that mention God out of 57. It's almost like God seems absent, but we know he's not because verses 23 and 24 mention him, that he caused all this. Verses 56 and 57 say this, thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. So it almost seems like God is absent for most of it, but he's working. 
He allowed Abimelech to rule for three probably long years, yet God over time caused animosity, maybe an evil spirit. He caused them to turn inward and turn on each other. His justice came about eventually and kind of through normal, ordinary events, but God was in control the entire time. The question for us this morning is, are we going to trust a God like that in our own life? Often we look to other things, we look to other desires, other things, other idols, really, because we think they will control our life better than God. But do we trust a God that we see in chapter 9, that even though he seems absent at times, he's actually working through every single event, every single affair in chapter 9. He's that powerful. Even if he doesn't intervene in the way we want, are we going to trust a God like this in chapter 9, who's going to bring about his plan eventually? I heard one theologian say that, The mill of God's justice grinds slowly, but it does grind eventually (laughs) and exceedingly fine. That's the kind of God we see here. I mentioned earlier that Abimelech's name means my father is king. Do you know what Jotham's name means, the youngest son? It means that the Lord, Yahweh, is blameless and filled with integrity. So through all these events, these seemingly chaotic events, God is blameless. He's full of integrity. Do you and I believe and are willing to surrender to that kind of God? In fact, I know on on a typical Sunday when we have uh, all of us gathered here today, this is a big enough audience to know that there are people severely struggling with things. Are you willing right now to give it all to the Lord, no matter how difficult it is? We're only going to defeat the enemy within when we surrender fully to a God who's in control, even in ways we don't understand in chapter 9, but he's in control. And then the last way to defeat the enemy within is we have to look to the one who conquered the enemy within. We have to look to the one who is very different than Abimelech. And who's that? Jesus. In fact, if you look at your bulletin, this series on judges is called Longing for a Leader because every single judge makes us long for a much better leader. Abimelech definitely makes us long for a better leader because he sought his own power. Jesus gave up his power. Abimelech grasped for power, and Jesus came not not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you think of Abimelech, he came killing his own brothers. Well, Jesus came dying for his own brothers. They killed him. Abimelech came taking blood from his brothers. Jesus came giving his own blood and giving his own life for his brothers. Isn't that amazing? Abimelech came seeking his own glory. Jesus came seeking the glory of the Father, fully under the control of the Holy Spirit, fully surrendered like in number two. I mean, can you imagine if you and I came and lived our lives fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit every single day? What would our lives be like? The only way we're going to do it is if we look to the one who conquered the enemy within every single day. Jesus Christ never gave in to his Heart, of course, he was perfect. He was tempted in every way as we were. The devil tempted him for 40 days in the wilderness, yet Jesus conquered. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we look to him, the real hero, the real leader, he will enable us day by day, moment by moment, to kill the enemy within. I want to invite the worship team forward to start playing in the background. And I want to give you a time to reflect. Go ahead and close your eyes, bow your head. I want you to take a moment, even though Abimelech's story seems so forward and so remote, what is your enemy within that you constantly fight? What are the sinful desires of your heart that wage war against your soul that you need to give to the Lord right now and trust him 
that he is a better savior than anything else. Go ahead and think about that for a few moments. Father, I pray that you would show us what the enemy is within us. Lord, if we're honest, we are a lot more like Gideon than we want to confess. We're a lot more like Abimelech who hungered and lusted for power or like these people who just wanted a leader to solve everything for them. Lord, identify our enemy within and show us that Jesus, he can conquer it. Show us that he is a good God worth surrendering to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you.
you can do as you think about applying this. We have some Advent resources that were mentioned. This is one in the book nook called Come Let Us Adore Him. It's a daily reading from now through the end of the month, just a couple pages that'll help you keep your eyes on Christ to look to the one who conquered the enemy within. We have a couple of children's resources. They're free for families that'll help you and your family focus on Christ every single day through the month of December because how many of us are a little busy right now this month? We need help focusing on Christ. I would also encourage you to read James chapter four that I mentioned earlier. Look at what James says to help us conquer the enemy within. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Amen. Thanks for coming.